Well, guys, we are starting week two or part two of this teaching series and this topic, this, t- this study that we've been jumping into on the angel of the Lord. How many of you in, in learned something last week about the angel of the Lord? Okay, cool. Five of you. Good. <laughs> we talk, I'm going to review a little bit. So here we go. I'm going to pay, att- pay attention. I'm going to hit, hit you with some questions of, of the angelic, not angelic, but of the celestial non, non-physical beings. Somebody tell me one of the types that we covered last week. Yeah, the cheruvim. Cheruvim. It's and cheru, and then vim in Hebrew. Cheruvim or cherubim were the ones that were on top of the ark, weren't they? They were faced each other. And you notice in the liturgy, um, we said, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory." That's not the cherubim saying that. That's the seraphim who say that in the book of Isaiah. And then, they, and it says after that, and those um, that are facing each other say, "Holy, holy, holy!" Right? What is it? What is it? They bless. Yeah, say bless. That's talking about the cherubim, those that are facing each other. So when we're praying that part of the liturgy, we're praying what the cherubim and what the seraphim are saying in God's throne room. Does that make a little more sense of why we pray that now? What was the other? I just gave you the answer. What was the other type of? The seraphim. Yeah, I, I want to make sure I spell it correctly. So I'm going to look at my cheat sheet here. And I like to spell it in Hebrew. Seraph. And then we make it plural with the final mem. And it's seraphim. What is seraphim? Does anybody remember? The fiery ones. The flaming ones. Good. The flaming ones. And uh, remember, I told you last week that um, these are the really... They, I think they have... If I'm not mistaken, they have six wings each. These are the only two winged, these are the only celestial, non-physical beings that have wings. There was a third category of celestial beings. What was that? Melachim. The Melachim. Melachim. Yeah. A Melach. Uh, melech. And you can make it plural, Melachim. Melech. Melech is just simply what? Man-like. Man-like messenger. It's a messenger. Yeah, they don't have wings, they don't have halos, they don't have harps, they don't fly around. Oftentimes in scripture, the angels are mistaken as, uh, as, as men, right? Melachim. And I mentioned that there is a class of angels of Melachim that uh, are called what? The archangels. How many are there of those? Seven. According, according to tradition, there's seven archangels. And I gave you a lot of evidence why I think that might be true, but there's seven archangels. So um, and it, uh, tradition kind of names them out, like there's... Um, Gabriel, there's Mikhail, Raphael. So, do what? Yeah, yeah, Uriel, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's the the main categorizations of of these celestial non-material beings. Okay, not all of them are angels. Only these guys are angels. We don't. We know that there's cherubim placed in the Garden of Eden. We know there's seraphim in the throne room of God. But angels kind of be, they, they kind of get sent out all over. And it said in scripture, remember, there was myriads upon myriads of angels. We don't even know how many angels there are. Okay. Then there was this fourth category, which we started talking about last week, which is the what? The Melech of Adonai, the angel of God, the angel of yud Hey vav Hey. And I remember I told you last week that if you ever see in your English translation of the Bible... If you ever see the word L-O-R-D in all caps, what does that mean? Yeah, it's not that the translators accidentally left the caps lock on. 
If you see L-O-R-D in all caps, the translators are telling us that that's the personal four-letter name of God. But they don't want to just randomly put a Hebrew word in an English Bible. So the way they denote that and signify that is L-O-R-D in all caps. The rest of your Bible follows the rules of punctuation. But then when you hit God's yud heh vav heh name, the four-letter name of God, they change it to give it respect and to tell you this is the name of God here. Okay? And it's, in Hebrew, it's yud heh vav and then a heh. Okay? The four-letter name of God. All right? There, there's some debate on how to pronounce that. Um, I, I, I tend to say Father or Lord or Hashem, the name. But yud heh vav heh. It's important that you know that God has a four-letter name. It's a, it's a personal name. Okay? His name is not God. His name is not Lord. He has a personal name. It's a, it's a derivative of the, the phrase, I am who I am. Okay? And so you put the certain letters from that phrase together and you have yud heh vav heh. Okay. I've seen it. I am who I am. I think a comment's put down there. You know, yeah. 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 You see sometimes with, with vowels. Put, why do they put that there? You'll see sometimes the yud hey vav hey has vowels in it. Um, it just depends. Sometimes they put the vowels of the word Adonai in it. Um, sometimes people will put the vowels of how they think it's supposed to be pronounced. So it just depends. Okay. But when you're reading a, a Hebrew copy of the Bible, more often than not, you're not going to see it with any vowels. Um, like in my Hebrew Bible that I have here, it doesn't have, it doesn't have yud hey vav hey with vowels. So I see another question. You do like in the Siddur you're seeing. OK, that's a really good question. So in your Siddurs, if you have a Siddur, the prayer books that we use, you're going to see sometimes you're just going to see you'd you instead of God's name. That's because um, there's this uh, this this like rule. And I think it's a good rule. And within Judaism of um, of writing God's name, just like I wrote up here with dashes, because here soon I'm going to take an eraser and erase that. I don't want to erase God's just name. I want to break it up a little bit because I don't want to just I don't want to profane his name in that way. But also it's in the Siddur, sometimes it's abbreviated. You have you ever, have you ever noticed that? Anybody ever seen that before? Sometimes it's just yud yud. It'll look like this in the Siddur. That's because they don't want to write God's name on a text and then that text hit the floor. Or that text accidentally be carried into the bathroom or something, and God's name be in that text and God's name be desecrated by that. So it's a sign of respect, basically. So but it is important. That we know that God has a holy name, a personal name, and, and that it's there in the text. So I laid that groundwork for you guys yesterday, or not yesterday, um, last week. The other, the other yesterday. Yeah, last week. So there is this entity in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, in the, what we call the, the Hebrew Scriptures, as the melech, the melech of this. So the angel, we can say melech, I'll write it in Hebrew here. Uh, Melech, and then uh, it'll say Yud, He, Vav, He. The Melech, and I said that it's been it's used uh, something like sixty three or sixty four times, sixty five times in the Hebrew Bible, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we covered a couple instances of where this character emerges in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, this is a very different character. And we're going we're gonna to talk about more about why that is today. But we talked about in Genesis 16. Do you remember the first occurrence in the first instance? The, the Melech of the Lord, the angel of the Lord comes on the scene. Does anybody remember? Abraham. Abraham and no, actually not Abraham yet. Hagar. Hagar. Hagar is the very first human, according to the Bible, to interact with the angel of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? An Egyptian woman, a bondservant of Abraham. She's the first one to interact with the angel of the Lord. 
And she actually calls the place. This place is the place where God sees me. And she even says, I have seen God and lived. And we talked about how that's kind of problematic because all throughout the Bible, we see that God is unseeable. You can't see God's face and live. He's too holy. So what did she see? Did she see an angel? Did she see God? Did she see the angel of God? Then we talked about Genesis 18. Now, this is what you're talking about with Abraham and Sarah. Remember, there was three visitors that come to Abraham's tent. And Abraham makes them this elaborate meal and he feeds them and he washes their feet or brings water so they can wash their feet. And then they make this prediction. Abraham, this time next year, you're going to have a son. But they converse with this this character who is called in Genesis chapter 18, the angel of the Lord. But then they switch sometimes and they just call him the Lord. You'd hate Vafe. <coughs> and then it says they took off walking and they have this. They walk down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham begins this negotiation with you'd hate Remember this? It was really interesting. It caused him you'd hate and Abraham standing in his presence and talking to him. And they're talk, They're having this negotiation back and forth. And that's problematic again, because is this the angel of the Lord or is this the Lord? And if this is the Lord, as Abraham is conversing with him, then how can Abraham be in his presence and how can he converse with him like this? How can he see him? And it creates kind of this conundrum, doesn't it? And I talked about last week how if we just read this, if we had no New Testament in our Bibles, we would read this and we would be left very confused, wouldn't we? We'd say, wait, what is going on here? I'm going to take you, I'm going to try to do three more occurrences of the angel of the Lord today. You guys think we can do it? Okay, good. Let's go to Genesis chapter, thank you, Wendy, whoever that was. Genesis chapter 22. So open up to Genesis 22. We're going to study more about this interesting figure, the angel of the Lord. Genesis 22. Yes, you can ask a question. We don't know. They didn't name them. Yeah. Good question. It may have been other Melachim, other, other angels, but it called them men. It called them the Lord. It called them the angel of the Lord. Um, and they ate physical food. Remember that in Genesis 18. So, okay, we're going to go to occurrence number three now of our angel of the Lord study. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. I'm going to read a lot here. Here we go. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him. Now, who is talking here? God, okay? Abraham. And Abraham said, Hineni in Hebrew, here I am. Such a loaded phrase. I'm surrendered to your will. In other words, verse two, he said, take now your son, your only son, which I promised to you. Remember uh, the angel of the Lord, I promised to you a while back, whom you now, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac and his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which who God had told him. Verse four on the third day, Abraham raised up his eyes and he saw the place from a distance and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Verse six. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Right. There's a lot of parallelism between that and Yeshua carrying the cross. Right. And he took his hand and took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he asked, He named me my son. Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God, who? God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. That's Elohim had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. I think I have a picture. Here, you be in charge of this. And when I change stories, just change slides. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll forget. Took out the knife to what verse am I on? Verse, verse 11. Here it is. To slay his son. But the Melech of Yudhevave, the angel of the Lord, called to him from where? Heaven. And said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, what did he say? He named me. Here I am. The same thing he said to Elohim back in verse 1. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. And do nothing to him. Let's pause. Who is Abraham making the sacrifice to? To God. Good. Okay. You've been following. He says, do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear Elohim, God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Who is talking here? The angel of the Lord. Then he's saying, you have not withheld him from me. And who is he making the sacrifice to? God. Huh. Remember, if we were reading this and we didn't have a copy of the New Testament, we'd be left very confused, wouldn't we? So there's almost like this. Okay, it's it's redundant language, isn't it? The angel of the Lord, apparently in the story, is God. But the angel of the Lord is talking about himself almost like in third person. It's odd, isn't it? It's like he's different but he's the same. He's separate, but he's also connected to. Verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the place, the name of that place, who? What? The Lord, Yudhe will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mounts of the Lord, it will be provided. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares Yudhe declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand, which is on the seashore. Again, this language of multiplying your offspring takes us back to Genesis chapter 12, doesn't it? When God is telling Abraham, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to mul- Even before the first occurrence of the angel of the Lord came on the scene, God is telling Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants. And here the angel of the Lord is saying, I'm going to multiply your descendants like the stars and like the sand. Keep going. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
because you have obeyed my voice. This is the angel of the Lord talking. But wait a second. Who commanded Abraham to do this? Elohim. God did. The Lord. You'd hate Vav, hate it. Who's talking here? The angel of the Lord. But then the angel of the Lord says, you've obeyed my voice. You see, there's this, it's separate, but it's together. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Wow. So again, if you're reading your Bible, if you just have a, you know, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, and you just read this, you'd be left, you'd have to do backflips to try to make sense of this narrative and try to, try to understand who is the angel of the Lord. Why does the angel of the Lord identify himself as the Lord? Why, why is the angel of the Lord able to be seen by humans? Why is the angel of the Lord, why is he able to eat physical food? You'd be left very confused, wouldn't you? Let's go on to our second occurrence of the day. The second of three. Go with me forward now to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. How many of you are like reading this and you're like, how did I never see this in my Bible? I know I was you know, studying for it. I'm like, wow, I just glossed right over all of this stuff. Genesis 31. Oh, you know, what? I lied. Before we go to Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 31, let me take you to Genesis 28 because we've got we to do some framework here. Genesis 28. Genesis 28, verse 10. Genesis 28, 10. It'll make sense why, why we're doing this. Genesis 28, 10. You there? It says, Then Jacob departed from Beersheba, the same Jacob, right? Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm sorry, the son of Isaac, Jacob, departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place, put it under his head and laid down in that place. Oh, good job. You're on it. He had a dream. Now, see if you can catch the error with the photo behind me. Okay, see if you can see, notice any errors. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels, the Melachim of Elohim, the the angels of God were descending and ascending upon it. Can you, did you catch the mistake? They have wings. Yeah, the Melachim don't have wings, do they? And behold, yud heh stood above it and said, I am yud heh the Elohim of your father Avraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, and the north and to the south. And in you, your descendants sh- and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Two more verses. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That's verse 15. That's important. You remember that. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land that I have promised you. Uh, I bring this back for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely yud hey vav hey is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the Beit Elohim, the house of God. Beit El, Bethel. And this is the gates of heaven. So Jacob Names the place Bethel, Bethel, the house, because the Hebrew word Beit and the Hebrew word El is house of El, house of Elohim, okay, house of God. Now I can take you forward to Genesis chapter 31. So turn there with us. Genesis 31. 
We're going to read 13 verses in this chapter. Genesis 31. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons. Remember, Jacob went to live with Laban, his, uh, his father-in-law. And Laban was not a very good guy. He wasn't a very honest guy, was he? And he kept uh, raising, his, his, uh, raising the stakes and, and requirements for him to be able to leave and take his wives with him. He's in this bad, bad situation. And Jacob has, he says, Jacob has taken away all of our father, that was our father's. And what belonged to our father, he has made all his wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban and behold, it was not friendly toward him as it was in, in the past. Then yud Vavhe said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly toward me as it was before. But the God of my fathers has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God, Elohim, has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at that time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the Melech, the angel of Elohim, said to me in the dream, Jacob. And Jacob said, what? Hineni, here I am. It's the same thing that Abraham said to God back in Genesis chapter 22. Hineni. And he said, the angel of the Lord said, lift up your eyes and see all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Wait, who's the God of Bethel? Now, we just read that verse. Where's Bethel going there with the ladder, right? He says, I am the God of Bethel. Who's talking here? The angel of the Lord is. And the angel of the Lord is making a a, a truth claim. He's making a claim. I am the God of Bethel. Now, here's the interesting question is this. This angel of the Lord isn't appearing to isn't appearing to Jacob. It isn't like he's coming to earth. Here I am. I'm the angel of the Lord. And I'm going to speak on behalf of God. You know, sometimes uh, uh, anti-missionaries or people that try to try to refute the claims that I'm making here today and last week will say, oh, he's just working under the agency of the Lord. That, you know, there's this ancient custom of Jewish like agency that if you send someone out, they can speak as if they are that person. And that would be fine. OK, whatever. But the angel of the Lord is speaking to Jacob in a dream. Why isn't the Lord just speaking to Jacob and saying, I'm the God of, of Bethel? You see, there is no agency happening here. It's the angel of the Lord talking to Jacob in a dream. And he's saying that I'm the angel of the Lord. You got that. You understand that I'm the God of Bethel. I'm not sent on behalf of, I'm not acting out of the agency of, I'm the God of Bethel. Where you anointed the pillar, it says in verse 13, where you made a vow to me. Wait a second, who did he make a vow to back in Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 28? He made a vow to yud didn't he? Now arise and leave this land and return to the land of your birth. 
So the God of Bethel, like we read in Genesis chapter 28. Now let's jump over to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48, because Jacob is going to retell these these uh, years of his life. Jacob's going to retell these stories over his sons now as he's Jacob is about to die and he's gathered all his sons together and he's about to declare a blessing over them. And it's really interesting. Now, years later in his life, Jacob's going to retell this story. And it's going to add more credence and more evidence to the, the, what I'm trying to posit to you today, that the God of, of Jacob is the same as the angel of the Lord. And let's go now to Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. So he blessed, Jacob blessed Joseph and said, pay attention, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless these lads. It's interesting. Jacob later in his life is still saying that the God of my fathers manifests or communicates, sends messages and is this angel of the Lord. He's equating the two together, isn't he? The angel who has redeemed me from evil. Bless these lads. I keep saying this over and over. If we didn't have a copy of the New Testament, if we didn't have the fulfillment and the fullest revelation of God's will through the birth and the ministry and the death, burial and resurrection of Yeshua of Nazareth, this would make zero sense to us, wouldn't it? Man, how blessed are we that we have God's glory revealed to to us through the pages of the gospel. Let's go on to our third interaction of the angel of the Lord. You guys want to? Now we're going to start a new book. Go with me to Exodus chapter three. We're leaving. So, so we, we covered one, two, three, four, all in the book of Genesis. All in the book of Genesis. Let's go to Exodus chapter three. Now a whole different book. What's going on in Exodus chapter three. Moses is uh, out shepherding his flock, his, his father-in-law's flock in the, the fields of Midian. But he, God has a calling on his life, doesn't he? And Moses just can't escape it. Exodus chapter 3. You got it. You're good. Okay. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horev, the mountain of Elohim. And the who? Angel, Angel of Yudhe appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must now turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not being burned up. When Yudhe the personal name of God, when the Lord saw that he turned aside and looked to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses. Now, who's in the bush? It says right there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the midst of the bush. Now, who's calling to him from the bush? God is. Are they both in there? Yes. And no. 
And then he calls out, he's God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And what does Moses say? There's that phrase. He named me. Good. Here I am. That loaded phrase. I'm surrendered to your will. And then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet because the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the what? God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Wow. So the angel of the Lord is saying that I'm the God of your fathers. Then Moses, what did he do? Because he realizes if I'm looking at if I'm looking at God, the creator of the universe, I'm going to die. Right. I can't see God and live. So what does it say? Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Is there any confusion here that, that is Moses looking at someone who's just acting under the agency of God? Does Moses think that? No. And that's the thing that people will say this. Anti-missionaries will say this. Oh, that's just acting under the agency of God. Well, I don't know. You better take that up with Moses. You better argue that with Moses because Moses was hiding his face from this agent of God. Apparently he knew he believed firmly that this was God. And it says, verse seven, Yud Hey Vav Hey said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given uh, heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am unaware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place in the Canaanite and Hittite and Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression of which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So turn last verse we're going to take you guys to today is first um, Corinthians. I'm sorry, second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3. Second Corinthians 3. So today we covered three of these interactions of the, the angel of the Lord. And we'll probably cover a few more next week as well. You might be thinking, wait, there's actually more? Yeah, there's actually more. And they actually get more interesting on some, some levels too. As we keep going. So go with me to Second Corinthians chapter three. I bookmarked bookmark my Bible in the wrong spot, so I gotta turn there. Second Corinthians chapter three. Paul wrote this to the believers in Corinth. Go with me to verse seven. Second Corinthians three seven. Let's just let's back up can we go back up to verse four? I love this. I love this chapter. Paul says such confidence we have through Christ toward God. There's a couple of concepts, a couple of words I want to teach you guys real quick. And that is a lot of scholars will say that this angel of the Lord is who? In case you're not following this, the angel of the Lord. But this is what we would call biblical scholars will call it Chris. Tophany. I might spell that wrong. Christophany, which is like a appearing, an early appearing of Christ, of Yeshua, of Messiah, before his advent and birth. This is maybe, that maybe the angel of the Lord. If you if you haven't caught on to that so far, that's kind of the the tree that I'm barking up. Is that the angel of the Lord is Yeshua pre-incarnate? He is a Christophany. Let's go to Second Corinthians chapter three now. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are 
adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But at the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the spirits fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that now surpasses it. But if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Paul's uh, he's kind of talking in circles there, isn't he? Like he does sometimes. Basically, what he's saying is like, guys, if if what we had was glorious, but it faded. How much more now do we have something glorious through the, the advent of Yeshua that won't fade is what Paul is saying. If I could summarize, paraphrase what Paul is saying. Verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenants, the same veil remains unlifted because it was removed in Messiah. So in other words, remember, I kept saying, if you read these stories of the, the angel of the Lord, you would read them with a veil, wouldn't you? You wouldn't fully understand what's going on. But then Messiah comes. The veil is lifted. I see now. I see. That the angel of the Lord, this figure I've been learning about all my life, that's him. That's the Messiah. It says in verse 14, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed through Messiah. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, whenever the Torah, whenever the law is read, whenever these stories of the, the angel of the Lord are read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces. Behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. Paul is saying there, guys, that if you turn your heart towards him and accept Yeshua as your savior, the veil that upon which is over your eyes as you're trying to read these stories, it is then lifted. And you understand more about the will of God, his heart for humanity, his desire to dwell with us, his plan for restoration and redemption and forgiveness of our sins. God, throughout human history and throughout the narrative of the Bible, has been trying to interject into the story of humanity and say, hey, I'm here. I want to be with you. I have a plan of restoration. I have a plan of redemption. I'm reminding you of that. I want to dwell with you. That was my intent. That was my desire. Right? One day the veil will be lifted. For all of us in this room, I hope, my hope and my prayer is that the veil over your eyes has been lifted. And that you have seen Yeshua, your Messiah, your Savior. If you're here today and you haven't, if you haven't come face to face with the angel of the Lord, with Yeshua, your Messiah and your Savior, come see me afterwards. 
And I'd be happy to introduce you to him. But with that, we're going to wrap up with prayer. And then maybe we have time for Q&A. Father, thank you for your word. And I thank you that you are God who desires redemption and restoration, desires to dwell with us. And even though we are sinful and fallen, and we cannot be directly in your presence, in your holiness, you revealed yourself to us through the person of the angel of the Lord, through Yeshua. Father, I pray there's anyone within the sound of my voice, whether here in this room or listening to the recording of this 10 years from now, that they'll be convicted. The Holy Spirit would work on them and drive them to the redemptive work of what Yeshua did for us as the Lamb of God, as that substitution, just like in the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. I thank you, Father. We love you and praise you. In Yeshua's name, amen. You guys have any questions? I see... Ted and then Howard. Jeez, a lot of hands shoot up. That's good. Ted? The, the people that aren't believers have the veil. And so how do the modern, well, actually, Jews the last 4,000 years, how do they justify these conundrums? Yeah. A couple of different ways. Um, and one is, like I mentioned, the, the agency rule. That this is an angel that was sent by God and is talking on behalf of God, so therefore can identify as God. I don't buy that. Um, I, I, I don't... There, there's too... And we're going to see more of these as we keep going through this study. There's too many instances where it's like the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a vision. Well, why didn't the Lord just appear to him in a vision? Why does he have to say the angel of the Lord? Like if the Lord wanted to talk to him, why did he have to... Why did he send an angel of the Lord but in a dream or in a vision? I don't think the angel agency thing plays out with me in it. But that's, that's the main way that Jewish anti-missionary apologists will try to explain away these instances and it is very lacking um it's it's very inadequate in my book so does that answer your question yeah but yeah i mean like xavier was sharing me like he had a conversation about about this topic this very topic with um a man was it on a plane an orthodox rabbi on a plane and they were just going back and forth and then finally the orthodox rabbi says well we have our traditions we have our way of seeing it i disagree and but you raise some very interesting points, so it's that veil, you know. Um, but yeah, I saw Howard. Jackie wants to speak first. Oh, Jackie wants to go first. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 Yeah, I don't know if um, I don't know to what extent they knew his personal name, if that was maybe passed down from generation to generation. But yeah, it was revealed to Moses. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know if maybe they didn't know his personal name until Moses. That's a good question. And maybe they just knew him only as Elohim. And that the author of these narratives is is looking back and saying that that's the angel of yud Vave. I know the name of God, and I know that's the angel of God. So perhaps, perhaps, I don't know, maybe if someone else has anything to share on that, that would be interesting to know. But Howard? Yes. My, my, my question is, uh, in the Hebrew translation of this uh, Bible, it says Yeah. And she called the name of God, <coughs> you are the God who sees me. But then she said, also, here 
have I seen the back of him who sees Oh, interesting. And that's a Jewish translation. That's a Hebrew. A Hebrew translation. But what what are you reading? What where are you getting that from? What translation is that? It is from the Bible. Interesting. Yeah, it doesn't have the word back in there. Um, it it is literally um, it, the translation of that verse. Howard, I, when you compare a lot of different translations, they're all over the board. Translators really struggle with that. Some will say, um, I have seen the God who sees me. Some will say, um, I have seen him who lets me live. Some will say, I have seen him and I've lived. They're kind of all over the board. I, haven't, I didn't really take time to pin down why they're so different. But, but I don't think they would ever, none of them say the back. The face. No, no. Say, I have seen. Yep, yeah, yep, so. exactly. Yeah, but that's interesting. The, the, word, the word back, I've seen the back of him is not is not in there in the original Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken. But that's an interesting observation. Or maybe, would the word back be like acharei? Is it in there? Okay, so I've... So, um, that's why some translations will say, I have seen him who looks after me, or he he looks after me, because acharei is the back, but it also means after. So, it's a really hard verse to translate. It really is. And Hebrew can be so ambiguous sometimes. So, yeah, really good point. Xavier, I see your hand. Thank you. Um, just to piggyback off your citation of Genesis 48, where he says the God of his father, Abraham and Isaac, the angel of the deity of all evil. Yeah. Um, yeah, when he's saying that blessing over, over Joseph. Yeah. So yeah. This, this point I heard from somebody who has a PhD from Hebrew University, and um, the word for blessed there is singular. Hmm. It says blessed last. So, yeah. Like he's not talking to two different people or about two different people because it's a singular it's verb. Singular verb. Interesting, yeah. interesting. That's true even in the Greek as well. Interesting. So what Xavier is saying there, if you look at Genesis 48 where it says, and the Lord who shepherded me and then the angel, um, it, it, may you bless these lads. There is a Hebrew scholar who said that the word blessed there is a singular verb, meaning it can't be talking about two different people. May you two people bless him. It's saying, may you, one person, bless him, bless these lads. So it's an interesting point. So let's take two more questions and then we'll wrap up for the day. Yeah, Jen? I'm learning a lot as, as um, I've been here. And yeah. one of the things that I've been wondering about for a while and just was afraid to ask, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to seem like I question anything. No, no. When we turn and say the Shema. The Shema, yeah. No, but that's a really good question, though. So she's asking, um, why do we turn, face Jerusalem to sing the Shema? Um, are you good on that part? Like, you don't have any questions about... I, I get the turning. Yeah. I don't the covering. So you just notice some people, if you look around, there's a tradition that goes, cover your eyes while you're saying the Shema. Um, it is it is the um, kind of the pinnacle of our prayers. It is the, the zenith of all the prayers that we pray, um, daily or weekly. And... You'll notice this if you go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem and, and you stand next to men or women as they're praying. If they hit the Shema, they'll all, that's the one prayer they take their hands, they'll cover. Sometimes they take their Siddur and cover their face. Um, it's the same reason why if you're sitting around your dinner table at Thanksgiving and, and someone says, okay, let's say prayers, what does everybody do? 
bow their head and close their eyes, right? And you know, like, I remember as a kid, and I'd look at my brother and I'd be like, looking at him, peeking. And I'd be like, and then we'd say, amen. And then I'd say, John was peeking. And then my dad would go, well, how do you know? Right? Yeah, so that's, why do we do that? Why do we bow our heads and close our eyes? Anybody know? That's just tradition, right? Why? Reverence, perhaps. Concentration, yeah. We can, fo- we can focus. There's no distractions, okay? We close our eyes and we focus, okay? That's why sometimes during praise and worship, sometimes people close their eyes. It's like, I want all distractions to be gone. You know, we take in so much through our eyes, so many distractions through our eyes, and they, they lead us away from true worship. Um, but yeah, when we say the Shema, when we're doing that, it's just a tradition to cover your eyes. So, so you're like, you, even if you open your eyes, you can't see anything. We're focusing on the words of the Shema. Um, the you know uh, these words that I command you today. So like that whole that's the zenith of our prayer service. So it's a really good question. There's a story that goes after the Holocaust. <clears throat> um, there was a rabbi who was going around somewhere. I, I don't remember if it was Poland or what. Let's say it was Poland. And during the Holocaust, I should say, a lot of these Jewish kids were being sent away into Christian homes and being hidden by Christians and Catholics and stuff. Um, uh, and so they wouldn't be sent off to the concentration camps, okay? And uh, that's a true story. Uh, but this rabbi took it upon himself, knowing this, uh, knowing that there's lots of Jewish children living in homes and uh, kind of assimilating into these homes, he wanted them to retain their Jewish identity and try to reunite them with their Jewish families. But also, many of them would be um, orphaned. Their parents would have been taken to the concentration camp and... and and exterminated. So he would go into orphanages, like Christian or Catholic orphanages, and he would stand on top of a table in the middle of the dining room as all these orphans are in there. And there'd be all these little kids running around and staring at him. And he would stand up on the table and he would go, Shema Yisrael. And he would then look around and any little kid that went like that, he would say, okay, you're Jewish, you're Jewish, you're Jewish, you're Jewish. come with me. And he would reunite them with their families. I, I don't know if it's a true story. I, I can't historically verify that, but it's a really neat story to think that, you know, if you teach your children, that's just one thing. Okay, we're going to focus on this prayer because it's so important in our lives. The Shema is that, that, you know, we need to hear and we need to obey God and that we need to teach the precepts of God to those around us. And we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, so that's kind of the essence of the, why we cover our faces. So, But good question. I'll take one more and then we'll be done. I'm keep looking at that clock, but that clock is not right. Yeah. <laughs> needs a battery. But I'm still good on time. Yeah, we'll go with Melanie, and then we'll be done. Uh, that's a very good question. Yes. Uh, he's saying yes to Yeshua and yes to the Lord. I don't know. So because 2 Corinthians is written in Greek, it's not going to have yud Vave. It's not going to have Elohim. Those are Hebrew words. But if you read 2 Corinthians and you come across the word Lord... It's going to be more than likely the word Kyrios. And yes, Paul is calling Yeshua Kyrios. But that's the same exact word that's used to describe yud Vavhe. And translators have a very hard time with the New Testament because it's all in Greek. So notice they don't do the L-O-R-D in all caps. Unless they're quoting from something from the Old Testament that they know uses the Tetragrammaton, the holy name of God. But if it's just Paul talking and Paul says, oh my Lord, it's going to probably going to be like Kyrios. And is that Yudhei Vafe? Is that Yeshua? Yes. Um, but yeah, it's a really good question. It's a little bit more convoluted in the New Testament. So, all right, guys, uh, let's do the blessing with the fruit of the vine.